Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be an international venture capitalist, or perhaps a 10% entrepreneur, more on what that means in just a moment, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a VC and the author of The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. He's also the guy who coined the acronym FOMO. Fear of missing out, which if you aren't familiar with the word, no doubt you've probably experienced the feeling. So if you don't want to have FOMO, please grab your mug and take a chug because it's time for another episode of T4C. And my guest is Patrick J. McGinnis, best-selling author, entrepreneur, and international venture capitalist who's worked in private equity at blue chip multinationals like AIG Capital Partners, as well as becoming a 10% entrepreneur himself, building a diverse portfolio of investments outside his day job, including fast-growing new ventures in the US, Latin America, Europe, and Asia, including Ipsy, the world's largest online beauty community, and the British stage production of The Last King of Scotland. Patrick's first claim to fame, or at least he can claim he made it into the Oxford English Dictionary, which is super cool, was coining the term FOMO, fear of missing out, as well as the related term FOBO, fear of a better option. And today, in addition to his VC investing, Patrick hosts an uber popular podcast called FOMO Sapiens. What else would it be called? Where entrepreneurial thinkers share how they make decisions. Patrick, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? <laughs> well, thank you, Andrea. I, so I have one coffee a day because I used to have eight and I cut down to one. I had that this morning. So I'm actually drinking a Schweppes seltzer. That's okay. It's, it's cool. What did you have this morning? Well, I had a nice, just, I, I don't, I only drink third wave coffee or Dunkin' Donuts and I just have coffee with milk. I don't do, you know, like lattes and things like that. Cause there's too, there's too many, it's too caloric, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot of empty calories. It is. And it's, it's also just why, like, why would you mess up the delicious flavor of coffee? You don't need all that shit in there. Yeah, that's right. Oh my goodness. You swore. Yeah. I wow. Did. Your show is my show. We don't swear. So I'm excited. I noticed that. Drop some bombs today. <laughs> yeah. I noticed you called it like a big heaping dung or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah. Something like that. 
So before we get into how FOMO became shorthand for analysis paralysis, how about we dig into, Patrick, what you do as a venture capitalist, and perhaps we should start by explaining to our young listeners what a VC is and does, because they kind of run the gamut. Yeah, it is true. It's become a term that is used to be quite specific, but now it's quite broad. It basically what a venture capitalist does is invest capital money to buy shares of private companies that are usually startups or innovative in nature. And the idea is you're giving the company money that it's going to use to try to grow and expand and you know, one day hopefully either be sold or go public on a stock exchange. So it's really about supporting entrepreneurs with capital and also with other kinds of support, whether it's ideas, connections, you maybe go in the board of directors, that kind of stuff. That, so that's what I do. I mentioned a couple of, I don't know if these are your more recent mm. or bigger investments, the Ipsy and then the British stage production of The Last King of Scotland. Those are pretty diverse types of investments. Mm. Could you take us through kind of the decision-making process? And how you analyze the risk reward for your money. Yeah, totally. So first of all, I should say that, so I do work as part of a venture capital firm. And that's kind of like part of what I do. But I also make my own investments, what I call angel investments. Um, and those are two angel investments that I made. And so those are actually part of the 10% entrepreneur kind of thing that we'll be talking about later, right? But really, it's all the same. I mean, Essentially, no matter if you're making an investment as part of a company or a personal basis, you kind of go through the same process with the one caveat that, you know, investing in a play, you know, I'm no expert in that. And I did that knowing that I wasn't an expert. So sometimes you take different types of risks with when you're investing personally. So all that to say that the, the central process of doing venture capital is this. Number one, having a, uh, what's called an investment thesis or basically a sort of a plan about what you want to invest in. For example, you may have a fund that says, we want to invest in female entrepreneurs, or we want to invest in companies in Asia, or we want to invest in deep tech, or we want to invest in you know social media, all those sorts of things. So that's kind of the first part is having a thesis. The second part is finding companies that match your criteria. So, you know, Say you invest less than $5 million and you invest in healthcare. Well, okay, great. You've got to then build a pipeline of companies. And then the third part is what's called due diligence. And that is the part where you meet with the management team, you assess their business plan, you go out and talk to suppliers or customers or other people in the market or competitors. And you try to figure out like, is this company going to be able to achieve what it says it's going to do? And that whole process, you can take a bit of time. And then from there, then you'll decide, do I want to make this investment or not? Got it. Now, I know from listening to another interview that you've done that these investments don't have to be in the $5 million range, what you just alluded to. Yeah. They can be small, like a few thousand dollars. So how do you make that decision, Patrick, in terms of what level of investment to make? Yeah, it's a really good question. So when it's when I'm working you know, as part of a fund where we have raised money from investors and we're investing on their behalf, then obviously you know, I'll, we can write checks that are half a million dollars or more. I think the largest investment I ever made 
in my career to date has been something like $50 million. Wow. Was that, that, a, was, that was a fund? Yes, that was not my money. I mean, if I had $50 million to invest in a company, I wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> I'd be sleeping. Um, <laughs> right? So, so anyway, um, but when it's a personal investment, which I think is really interesting, it can be very small amounts of money. So I think I remember the first, one of my first investments I ever made, I met with this company that I kind of liked, or I guess I really liked. And I was talking to the founder and I said, well, you know, he, he said, I'd really love you to invest. And I said, okay, well, how much, what's the minimum investment that you would take? Because I'm new at this and I frankly, am, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to put that much money in because I want to be able to make a lot of investments and be very diversified, not just put all my eggs in one basket. And I'm only investing 10% of my money. So like, you know, again, I don't have unlimited money. It's not like I have like parents who are going to give me a billion dollars. Right. And so he said, well, our minimum is $25,000. And I said, well, I'll give you five. And he said, I will take it. That may sound like a lot of money if you're a college student, but if you've been working for a few years and you've saved some money, it's, it's not an unreasonable amount of money, frankly. And so it can be even low, lower than that. Friends of mine invested in the last King of Scotland, they put a thousand dollars in. And so what you really need to do is think through your strategy. You know, say you have a pot of money to invest. When you invest in a company like a venture capital company, like what I do, one thing that's important to note is you can't sell those shares the next day if you decide you want to do that. This is a private company. And until the company is sold or goes public and the stock is traded, it's an illiquid investment. You cannot get your money out unless you, know, you sell your shares back. There's all kinds of ways that could happen, but generally it doesn't happen. So you have to be comfortable with the fact that you may not see a return on this investment for years or the company might fail and you'll lose everything. Therefore, it's really important to think about being diversified. And so that's why I say 10%, because 10% of my money is in these much higher risk, more speculative investments. And the very risky ones, I might even put a little less. The more safe ones, I might put more. It just depends on sort of how excited I am about the investment. Got it. So what is the average amount of time that someone's money can be held up or where you are waiting to see whether or not you've lost it or whether or not it's going to return additional capital to you? The average startup takes seven years to go from the first time they raise money to when the investors get their money back with a return. So you've got to really think it's a seven-year thing. It could be faster. But with the irony here, this is like the part that nobody tells you. I wish I had known these things, but I didn't, is that the really successful ones can take even longer. Like some of my best companies, I've been investing... I've been an investor in them for like 10 years. And yes, I've been able to get some money out. They've been a dividend or they've rebought some shares or whatever. But like your, your investment becomes very valuable, but it's, you know, you're waiting 10 years. So you need to just know that. And that's fine because it means that, that you're going to make a wonderful return. You're going to make like dozens and dozens of times your money, right? But, but um, not always. But not always. Or it could fail. That's the thing about it. So it's important to not to recognize that this is very high risk. And that, you know, it's not for everybody and that you, you need to include these kinds of investments alongside, you know, more traditional types of investing. So explain why you wrote the book, The 10% Entrepreneur and mm. the premise of it. Yeah. So what happened was I went to college um, at Georgetown and I worked on Wall Street and I had a very good career. And then I went to Harvard Business School and I came out and I was working at investing firm, doing sort of private investing and investing in fast growing companies all over the world. And, 
you know, it was great. I was doing really well. I had a, a, you know, a fancy office on Park Avenue and flying around the world, staying at Ritz Carlton's and in business class. And like, it was kind of like the career that I always wanted. And unfortunately, my company in 2008 uh, was part of AIG. AIG went bankrupt, essentially. It was a company that was one of the largest companies in the world and overnight it went bankrupt. And I had shares, I had stock in the company that were trading on the stock exchange that fell like 95% in a couple of weeks. And I realized that despite the fact that I had done all the right things, it uh, didn't matter. And I worked at a huge company. It wasn't like I was at some you know, like tiny startup or something. I was at one of the largest companies in the world, but overnight, my career completely blew up. And I realized in that moment that I had never diversified. I, I had all my eggs in one basket. And so from that point forward, I decided that I was going to spend part of my money and my time doing things outside of my day job to build a portfolio of activities and investments that were mine, that belonged to me, that no matter what happened at my day job, they would be there for me. And so I started doing that. And I was like, okay, great. How much should I do? And so I just started thinking, well, 10% feels right because 10% can make a difference, but it's not so risky that it'll like, if I lost all that money that I would be living on the streets or something or having to move into my parents' basement. But if it goes well, that 10% could become really meaningful. And so that was the number I started with. It felt easy to, you know, I could save 10% of my money and put it aside for this. I didn't have to make a huge sacrifice. So I started with 10% and that, you know, since then I've kind of increased above that uh, over time, but 10% was was a great place to start. We're going to get more into this shortly, but you studied international economics as an undergrad. And as you mentioned, you went to Harvard Business School and got your MBA. Is it essential for an aspiring VC to have a background in finance or deal analysis in order to break into this field, Patrick? Probably. I mean, the reality is most people who are VCs don't come from the finance world, actually. Unlike, you know, sort of like... um, investment banking or hedge funds where like it's very, very nitty gritty finance, tons of numbers. Like venture capital is kind of like basic. It's like, do you think that the the sales are going to go up or down? Like it's not complex from a numerical standpoint. That's why most VCs actually come from being entrepreneurs or working at tech companies, being a product manager. Like their core competency, what makes them great VCs is they understand how to build new things and build new businesses and new products. And so that's the typical background of a venture capitalist. I kind of snuck in the side door. So, you know, I was lucky. But it sounds like when you were initially kind of laying out your process for evaluating an investment, that your finance background Mm -hmm. is valuable in looking at the term sheets and looking at sort of the deal flow and making that determination. It is valuable and definitely it can be helpful. To be a good venture capitalist, you need to have a couple of basic skills, right? Number one, you need to be able to find companies and build relationships with companies. And, and, and so just being like willing to go out and network is important. Number two, you need to be able to get smart on an industry quickly. And so that, you know, it's like decide, if I decide tomorrow I want to invest in cryptocurrency, you know, I need to go out and learn everything I can you know, so I can make better judgments when I see companies in that space. And then from there, there is some numbers, right? There there is some number crunching and looking at forecasts and that sort of stuff, but it's not complex usually. There may be a lot of data analysis in terms of analyzing a company and how they're doing for sure, 
Um, and then there's also you have kind of the legal skills because you're reading contracts and negotiating. So it really requires a broad, you kind of have to be like a multi-sport player, kind of well-rounded. And so that played well to me because I'm not that good at finance. Like I will tell you that right now. I'm never going to be a hedge fund manager. Like that would be, don't give me my give me your money if, if I have a hedge fund because I'll lose it. And so, yeah, this is just a better fit for my skills. So can you take us into a typical day for you, Patrick, as a VC and as a podcast host, in addition to whatever else you're doing with your time? <laughs> yeah, it's every day is a little different. It's so funny. I really enjoy that. Actually, when I was in business school, the head of career services at HBS had us like do this really interesting exercise, which at the time I thought was completely ridiculous, but now I realized was actually awesome. His name is Dr. Tim Butler, Timothy Butler. And he had us close our eyes and he took us through a guided meditation where we imagine what a day in our life would be like in 10 years. And mine was always like, I was never seating down. I was never doing the same thing. Like some people was, saw themselves like sitting at a desk, analyzing things. I was not me. So that's really good because that I was able to do now that in my life. So basically, I spent a lot of time talking to people, like trying to figure out, just learn, right? Being a podcast host, being a venture capitalist, all those things, really what you're doing at the end of the day is being a curious person and going into the world and trying to find new and interesting things to focus on and to learn from. And then trying to, in your head, kind of like see the patterns, and so it's crazy. That's kind of what I do. So I meet with a lot of companies. I see a lot of companies send me their pitch and I meet with them and they pitch me all over the world. Like I'm going to Mexico City next week. I'm meeting with companies there because I invest a lot in Latin America. And then, you know, I'm reading the news to figure out what the trends are, what's happening, what are the market's doing, stuff like that. I'm talking to other friends who are in the business world to see like, what, what are you hearing? Like, what are you working on? Just always trying to know what's going on. And then I spent a lot of time trying to help the companies I've invested in to be more successful. Maybe they need new investors or clients or, you know, how can I, you know, oh, you're losing your, your CFO is leaving. Where, where can we get you another one? That kind of stuff. And the funny thing is the podcast is really similar. I mean, being a podcaster, I have a lot of support and I, you know, you know how it is being a podcaster. Like it's, it's kind of like the easiest job and the hardest job at the same time, because thanks to technology, you can podcast from anywhere. And you can interview guests anywhere. I mean, I before the pandemic, I used to only interview people in person, believe it or not, which now I'm like, I really wouldn't do that, right? It's so much easier. But you need a lot of support because I, need, I have an editor, I have a team that helps me book my guests, I have a marketing team, I have a person who helps me get advertisers, so like all these people. So what the podcast really is, the work of the podcast is managing the team and working with the team. And then also obviously prepping for interviews, always trying to find great guests. And so I have all these strategies to create, just like with venture capital, how do I find great guests? How do I find great companies? Very similar. And that is talking to people? I can't tell you because it's not. <laughs> oh, um, come on. No, here's what you do. There are two things you have, well, three. Number one, you need to have a great presence on the web. So you need a good website and you need good marketing and good socials and all that sort of stuff so that people know who you are. Because so many guests that I come, that I get, they come to me. I get an email from a PR firm or an entrepreneur or whatever. And then I'm able to say, oh, it's interesting. How interesting they are. Let's look at this person. Are they a fit for us? You know, we know our show. So we, we you know, I'll see great ideas all the time that I'm like, what a 
wonderful person. They're just, but they're not for me, right? They're just not for our show. So that's A, is having that presence. B is having really awesome relationships with people who send me guests. So publishing houses and PR firms, like they send such wonderful people my way. I'm so thankful for all of them. And so, you know, I just like reach out to new ones all the time. Hey, you know, I saw that you're a PR firm or you're a publisher. Like, please consider us when you're trying to find a home for your, your you know, your authors or your companies. And then the third is I have a colleague that works with me and we just say, okay, let's go find 10 people we think will be awesome and reach out to them. And I'm constantly just challenging him to think bigger and bigger, like who's awesome that we could get. And that, and that's what we do. I love it. So Patrick, if one of our young listeners were interested in breaking into the VC world, did not have a background in finance, what would you recommend they do? Where would you recommend they go to get their foot in the door? Well, there's a lot of great things that you can do. Number one is venture capital isn't typically something people do right out of college. They can do. It's not unprecedented, but most of the roles in venture capital are more people that are, you know, sort of have already worked for a decade or so. So let's just say that. But there are some roles. So number one, I think, is when you're raising money for a company, there's an old saying in the world of venture capital, which is when you ask for money, you get advice. When you ask for advice, you get money. So number one is, and I get pitches all the time from people on LinkedIn and email like, hello, my name is XYZ. Here's my CV. Please hire me. And I'm like, who? I don't know you. I mean, I, I appreciate like I appreciate the effort, but like I don't know you and I'm busy. And so like I don't have the time for this right now. When people ask for advice, especially when people like listen to my podcast and then send me like a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn and say, hey, I listened to your episode about this. Really interesting. I'd love to know, you know, do you have any advice for somebody? Like, I'm much more willing and interested and like, you know, I had a guy I met a couple of years ago who I ended up hiring to work with me. So I would say coming in in a humble way and just saying, I'm looking to learn, would you be willing to share an insight with me is very important. Number two is you can apply to these jobs, of course, but they're very competitive. But, you know, you just want to just get your resume out there. What's and that? what are the jobs? So what- Being an what analyst at a venture capital be? firm. Okay, being an analyst. But there just aren't many. It's really hard. And they typically only recruit from a few places. It's like, it's just, that's kind of the nature of the industry. So if that's not, if you're not at Wharton or at, you know, Columbia or something or Stanford, that's okay. Another thing is to look in geographies where there are fewer, there's less competition. For example? Uh, for example, Kansas City. One of my friends is a venture capitalist in Kansas City. Love you know? it. And he's there because... He was there because he was in New York City and he said, there's too much competition here. I want to be an investor somewhere where there isn't as much competition. And so we're starting to see the venture capital is not just in Silicon Valley and New York and Boston now. It's going all over the place. And so you could find a VC firm in Minneapolis and there's just less competition there. And so it's a great place. So is there a website or a, a listserv that people could go on? to find some of these off the beaten track firms? I would go to DealBook or Crunchbase. Those are two websites. DealBook.co, you can search by location for VC funds. That's a really good way to do it. There's so many, that's the thing. And so it's like, it, this is just, it's, but there's, it is like a very, it's unlike a lot of industries. Like if you want to be a consultant, 
there's like these consulting firms, like, and they have offices in every city. And so you just sort of, VC is like these small firms of eight to 10 people. So you really, it's on you to do the analysis and to dig up the names and cold call and email and reach out and network and all that sort of stuff. Got it. And if you want to be a VC, these are skills you better have, right? That's right. Okay. So let's flashback, Patrick, to when you were an undergrad. You went to Georgetown University and you majored in international economics Mm. and Latin American studies. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? No, zero idea. I thought I had two ideas. First of all, I come from Maine. I come from a small town. Neither of my parents, my mom finished an associate's degree in college. My dad didn't go to college. You know, most people I didn't went to high school, didn't go to college. So like, I, which is fine. I mean, that's America. But, but I'm just saying like, I didn't have like a dad who was an investment banker or a mom who was like a CEO who was like, I just didn't have that kind of like. Um, Mentorship. Yeah. Like my parents were very supportive. You know, like we'll support whatever you do, but they weren't like, Hey, this summer you should get an investment banking internship. Like I just didn't have that kind of direction, which a lot of my friends did. So I was a little bit unaware. I thought I was going to get a PhD in economics and be like an economist, but I'm terrible at math. So that would have been a bad move. Or I wanted to work on Capitol Hill, but I had spent my freshman year interning and I was not, I didn't enjoy the work. I thought it was not for me. So I was lost. And then my junior year, but I had high grades. Like that was the one thing I knew. I had incredibly high grades. Like I was top of my class. So I was like, well, I'll just study really hard and like it'll sort itself out. And then my junior year, I spent it in Argentina and I fell in love with Latin America. And so I was like bound and determined to get a job in Latin America. And so I applied for a million jobs and I got none of them. And then, I mean, I was it's really terrible. But I then, my, a friend of mine was, was like the king of investment banking interviews. And I was, all the smart kids were going to investment banking and the money was really high. And so I said, okay, well, I have good grades and I'm smart and I'd like to make some money. And so I applied to a bunch of investment banks and I got one offer and I took it. And that, that was uh, the beginning of my career. So that was which company that you started at? AP Morgan Chase. Got it. And your role was? associate? I started as an analyst and then I was promoted. Yeah. I did a traditional Wall Street analyst program at Chase, which was before the merger. And Chase was almost like a commercial bank. It was not a particularly prestigious job, frankly. But then we merged with JP Morgan. And then I was like, oh, I work at JP Morgan. (laughs) Awesome. And you were doing private equity there, right? So I did a year of investment banking. I was terrible at it and I hated it. And I went to my boss and I said, I don't like this. I'm going to leave finance forever. I'm going to go to a Fulbright. I was applying for a Fulbright. And he said, don't do that. We have a venture capital group. Why don't you go and interview with them? And I did. And I, I got the job. And so I think one of my big lessons early in my career is be very unafraid to share what you want and what you need. Because your boss then, like I told my boss what I needed and he made it happen for me. But if you never say anything and you're just unhappy, then how can you fix the problem? So is private equity a synonym for VC? They're very similar. The difference is it's all about investing in private companies. Venture capital is early stage startups. Private equity is bigger companies. So for example, if a private equity firm invests in like, you know, Sweetgreen 
or like a, you know, something like that. And they invest like hundreds of millions. That's kind of more established companies that oftentimes are already profitable. Whereas VC is about startups that are probably losing money and are not proven yet. Okay. Got it. So from JP Morgan, you went to grad school, you Mm. went to HBS and little did you know, Patrick, that some offhanded slang mm-hmm. that you throw around would end up becoming a defining moment in your professional journey. Because that's where FOMO was birthed. Yes. I know you've shared this story ad nauseum, but could you share it one more time? The genesis of FOMO's birth. I will, and I'll do it happily because I never get sick of it. Because it is the, I mean, I'm so thankful, right? Like, maybe this is going to be ridiculous, but I'm just going to say it, which is that I imagine when you have like an, a singer that had like that great hit in their life and they, they, they're like, they sing it for 35, 40 years. I don't think they're sick of singing it because they're like, I love this song because this song gave me everything that I have. I feel that way about FOMO. FOMO, I mean, it didn't give me everything I have, but FOMO really has been like an awesome It's made life so fun. I'm so thankful for all of it. So I never get sick of it. I love FOMO. And people ask me that all the time. Like, how can I get sick of it? You know, it's not like a, it's not like it's like I had to eat ice cream every day. You get sick of ice cream if you ate it for a week, but FOMO, no. Essentially what happened is this. I come from a small town in Maine, as I mentioned. I'm a, you know, simple guy. I moved to, you know, college. I'm in the library. I studied like more than anybody. I was an animal. I worked in banking. I was at the always working, working, working. And, but I saved all this money when I was working those four years and I got to business school. And right before, when I took my GMAT, I took my GMAT the day before 9-11. And so, and I lived in New York City at the time. Like, so I take the GMAT, I get a great score. I'd never even thought about applying to Harvard, but my score was really high. So I said, I'm going to apply to Harvard and Wharton. And that's it. If I don't get in, I'm not going. I'll figure something out. I got into both, thankfully. I chose Harvard. But, you know, I get there and it's like this amazing place. It's a beautiful campus, amazing classmates. Just, it's just like heaven for somebody like me who's an extrovert and ambitious. I was like, oh my goodness, like I am in the most amazing place on earth for me. And I want to take advantage of every minute. And I just lived through 9-11. I realized life is so precious and you never know what's going to happen. You got to live for now. And so I tried to do everything and I was constantly overwhelmed and tired and stressed. And I realized like this wonderful environment in some ways was like kind of oppressive and giving me anxiety, even though I didn't think about it at the time. I think we didn't talk about these kinds of things in the same way. It was more like a joke, but I also realized my classmates were the same. And so I started joking and saying, you know, I remember like on a Friday night one time I had like five social events and I try to make it to all of them. And I think I probably made it to four, but I just started laughing because like anytime you try to plan with people, they would just be like super overscheduled. And so I started saying that people had a fear of missing out and started calling it FOMO. And I wrote an article in the school newspaper that came out on May 10th, 2004 called Social Theory at HBS, McGinnis's Two Foes, all about FOMO and another term called FOBO or fear of a better option, which is also kind of got some, some fame, not like FOMO does. And that was it 10 years later. I graduated. I, you know, I moved on my life, but FOMO stayed very popular at Harvard. It got spread out into other places. It made it into the media. And then in, 10 years later, in 2014, it was added to the dictionary. 
But you weren't even aware that it had become a thing. No. Until years after it was a thing. I mean, that's the crazy part. I was not, I was like working on Wall Street. I was not, didn't even like occur to me. And, and then when I got the call from the reporter who wrote an article, uh, this, the whole thing that, that happened was when it came out in the dictionary, a reporter wrote an article about the history of FOMO. He found me and he said, you know, I'm writing about this word you created. And I was like, why? And he was like, it's in the dictionary. And then I had this moment where I knew it was a faded moment because I was literally getting on a train to go to Boston and he was based in Boston and I was going for my 10 year business school reunion. And I met him there. He interviewed me and I just was like, this is going to change my life. And it did. I have chills actually. I have chills, Patrick, because I believe very much, and I want to talk with you about this later, but I believe in magic. Mm. Not saw lady in half magic, but black magic, the shit, whether it was 9-11 or the pandemic that comes into our life out of the blue and it's awful or the pixie dust magic Mm. because both happen to us throughout our lives, us collectively, and you cannot predict when it's going to happen. You just have to be open to it. I agree. So what lesson do you think there is, Patrick, in your story about how FOMO changed your life for our young listeners who may, in fact, right now be experiencing FOMO because so many of them are, especially those who are preparing to graduate in the spring, we're doing this interview in sort of the early part of February 2022. Mm. They're afraid of so many things, paying off their student debt, whether they'll ever be able to buy a house, whether they're ever going to live a life like you're living, Patrick. And they're afraid they may miss out or make a mistake with respect to the type of job or the type of industry they start out in post-graduation? Oof, there's so much to say here. Uh, let me, I'll start with my new, I came up with a new expression that I've been saying, but I've only said it like one time on another show. So I'm gonna give you some, a little hot, spicy, early version of this, which is fear-based decision-making leads to, leads to suboptimal outcomes and incomes. Okay, that's an acronym. Is that or that's the longer version? Oh, okay, because that's like a very that's a big mouthful there. Yeah, it's, I can't acronym. <laughs> it's it's more like a it's just a it's a saying. I think. Okay, like, okay. Fear based decision making results in suboptimal outcomes and incomes. Now, what does that mean? It's pretty obvious, but like if you if you're making decisions out of fear, you're not you're limiting yourself, and you're gonna limit your potential in you know in terms of income and stuff like that, right? So. So fear, I have no space for fear making decision making because that's what FOMO is. And I spend so much time dealing with that. And I've realized now that like basically it's all in your head. Like you are, you are, it's like you're running on a treadmill and you're using all your energy to go nowhere. And so it's easier said than done. I understand like it's, it's, it's easy to be like, don't do that. Right. Of course you have to actually work through it. I would also say, this whole experience of the FOMO thing and just like how this all happened, what we just talked about, 
it, there are two like really valuable lessons in it. I think that I draw from it and hopefully, you know, others would as well. The first is I wrote that article as a joke. It was in the satire section of the newspaper. And, you know, you just never know what's going to happen with something that you create, like creating content or creating things. You don't know where it's going to go. So like in, in a both positive or negative way, like you could write a tweet that 10 years later gets you fired. That happens all the time. But you could also write an article that becomes a book and a podcast, you know? And, and, it, and so I would just say, recognize that, but also be unafraid to share your ideas as long as you do so in a way that's respectful and adding value to the world. Like I don't, I, I would be afraid, by the way, to, to write an article that's really mean and critical and potentially offensive because like you see that like people are good for the, they're going for the Supreme court and somebody's like, you're a college newspaper. You know, you're like, Oh my goodness. Right. I mean, that's cancel culture stuff, whatever. I'm not going to get deep into that. Cause that's not the point here today. But at the same time, the FOMO article, I wrote that, like, it's a sweet article. If you read it, you can find it online. If you Google McGinnis FOMO, it's so sweet. And frankly, like I had no idea that it would turn into like the thing, you know, all the things it has. So, that was a really valuable lesson. And so when I create content, whether I'm writing books or articles, like I always try to create something that is respectful and tries to be positive and add value that aligns with my values so that like, I don't have to worry about, oh, 10 years down the line, people are going to be like, what a jerk, you know, don't want that. I mean, it could happen, but let's hope that. The second thing is when that happened with the FOMO thing, I knew it. Like I knew it in my bones, this was going to be important. And so I made a real, I went to, I was going to Boston. I made time to meet this reporter. I lined up friends of mine. He could also interview. I just knew. And in fact, we did the interview and it took like six weeks to come out. And when it came out, I thought I'd be like one paragraph. So I really just thought it'd be funny and fun to have as like a light thing. It ended up being the entire article. It went viral. That's how I got my first book deal out of that article. So I, I didn't know it'd be that important, but I knew it was important and special and that it was something that I needed to focus on. So like there's a famous quote from that show, The Good Wife, which is, I love that show. I'm gonna, I'll admit it. And Alicia Florek's boss, Diane uh, Lockhart, says to her, you know, if somebody opens a door for you, you have to run through it. And I saw that door open, and I was ready. And that's really important too. I almost feel like this is a call to action, Patrick, to live in the moment. Mm. Because sometimes the clues or the breadcrumbs of your future success are right in front of you. And that fear of missing out, that like not living in the present moment, living in the future is going to ruin it. It has the potential to ruin it. If you hadn't written about FOMO, (laughs) it could have ruined it for you. I mean, I'm not saying you wouldn't still have had a successful career, but a different career. You're right. And I would say also what I've learned because I did so much research is that actually like from a physiological, neurological perspective, FOMO is really dangerous because what you're doing is you're spending so much time disconnected from reality that your ability to parse reality from fiction becomes weaker, right? And so like, that's why living, I mean, it's, you know, why people talk about being present or, mindfulness, like all that stuff, like it sounds so frou-frou. It's not, it's like, it's kind of like, it's like neurologically healthy behavior. A hundred percent. You and I were chatting about Stephen Kotler, who we've both interviewed on our Mm -hmm. respective podcasts. And 
the more you get into understanding the way that the brain works and the amygdala, the primitive part of the brain that's the fight, flight, or freeze part of the brain, that is there or was there to help the caveman escape the saber-toothed tiger when we were going to be lunch or dinner. And what's happened is this 24-7 surround sound that we live in today that wasn't there as much, even when you were in grad school or college, but that our young people live in today has their amygdala so overstressed, overtaxed, that they're in a permanent state of this arousal, of this fear. 100%. It's so true. And I, one of the things that's kind of insane too about this whole story, I have to like really write this down again. It's just, there's so many elements, but essentially I was, when I was at Harvard inventing FOMO, Mark Zuckerberg was living across the river as an undergrad inventing Facebook. And so like, I've had, we didn't have social media. Oh my goodness. Had we had, so we had thing, I think called Friendster, which was like very first gen uh, and quite, quite lame. But um, had we had all of that? Oh my goodness. And the other thing is that like, Facebook is the reason why FOMO went from being this niche problem to being like, you know, very common because if you go somewhere, yeah, I mean, FOMO is always, it's always existed. It's part of the human experience. Of course, it's in our DNA. But if you go somewhere, I was just on an island without internet for seven days. I didn't have a lot of FOMO because like I'm living in the present moment, right? You're just, you're just doing your thing. But the minute you get off the plane and you fire up Instagram, you're like, you, that old feeling comes back. And so it is incredible to me that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and me, I'll put us, in, I don't know if I want to be grouped with him anymore because he's so naughty, but we were there at the same time doing this thing that spread FOMO around. Mm. So before we get to the two final T for C questions, Patrick, I want to ask you what the best career advice is, either that you've gotten personally or that you've heard. Mm. That's a good question. Such a hard question. Ay, ay, ay. I'm just thinking about somebody right now who I've, I've been mentoring, as it were. And... Oh, yeah, I know it. Okay. And we had this whole conversation. And it's based on my own experience quitting a job. But it's like, the only thing that matters in any sort of career discussion with your boss, and this sounds, by the way, now it's going to sound a little bit like hardcore, but just go with me on this, is leverage. You either have leverage or you don't. And when you don't have leverage, it doesn't matter what you do. It's very hard to create value for yourself in a workplace. Like you can keep working really hard and get promoted. But when you have leverage, when people really need you, that's when you can actually be fully appreciated. And the example I'll give you is this. I was leaving a job and a friend of mine I just was talking to was leaving a job. Like at the minute I decided to quit, the promotion got offered that I've been waiting for, the, the, the raise that I had won, all those things. It's why? Because I was good at my job and I was willing to leave. And so I'm not saying to go into your boss every week and say like, I'm quitting just as a way to get a a raise. But I would say, if you're not happy and you're willing to walk away, then that's the time to to play your leverage and see what you're really worth. Definitely. Definitely. Great advice. Thank you. So two final questions. And these are questions I try to ask all my guests. And in particular, Patrick, this one is about 
a time in your professional life when you struggled? You've already mm. talked about your AIG sort of seminal moment in your professional life in 2008 when this company that was too big to fail failed. But maybe it's a smaller experience, doesn't have to be huge, but a time when you struggled and the lesson that you may have learned and how you persevered. Yeah. So the story I don't think I've ever shared publicly, but I will tell it today because one thing that happens, everybody, is when you start doing what we do, what Andrew and I do, and you talk to more and more people, you become way more comfortable being vulnerable about stuff that, you know what I mean? Like a hundred percent. Yeah. So I would have, I was, I remember at the time I felt really bad, but now I feel okay. I mean, I, I'm okay to talk about it. Essentially after AIG blew up and I left my job, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I remember my happiest time was doing venture capital in Latin America. And so I made some networking and I met a fund and they said, we'd love to get you involved in what we're doing. And we're going to actually like sponsor you at a conference in, to come to Brazil. Um, you have to fly yourself, but we'll cover the entrance, come down, meet a bunch of people. Like, you know, a lot of people from when you did this 10 years ago, but like come back and, you know, we'll like just hang out with us and we'll like get to know each other better and see what we could do together. So I was like, great. So I used miles. I flew to Brazil, stayed with some friends. Um, they lost my luggage. It's fine. I actually ended up getting, I, I wrote them later and the CEO of Delta's assistant actually called me and they gave me all this stuff, which is really nice. So if you're nice to airlines, they'll be nice to you. But I lost my luggage. So I get to this conference. I don't have any proper clothing. I look like I, you know, like rolled out of bed. And I went to um, downstairs. I didn't know anybody. And there was a panel of VCs of these people who I'd never heard of. They were, these were like people way younger than me who didn't even speak the language. And they were up there talking like they were the kings of the world. And everybody ran after them when they left the panel and was like, come talk to me. And they were so in demand. And I was a nobody. And I was like, I used to do that. I was the guy on the stage. And now I'm a nobody. And I look like a schlub. And they lost my luggage. And I went up to my room and I just cried. Because I was like, I wasted all this time. And now I've missed my chance. And so what did I do? Well, I, I never stay more dep depressed about anything for more than a couple of days. That's not my style. But I was like, all right. So I started working with these people. I made some small investments. I networked everybody. I was really out there talking to people. Fast forward a year later, I was on the stage. And so, and then, by the way, then there's ups and downs after that. So it's not like that's the end of the story. And then, you know, roll credits, Patrick's. But I just remember I had never had to do that before. I had never had to sell. I had always been on the side of the table with the money where people come to me. So learning that you have to go out there and build a brand, it's, it was super valuable and it really served me. But I felt such, such imposter syndrome. Like I am deeply rooted in, I'm, I have right now, like I always do. And I think it keeps me hungry, but it also like can be really hard. Thank you so much for sharing that, Patrick. And I couldn't agree with you more. These humbling experiences are so valuable. And I have come to realize, not just from having interviewed, as you have hundreds of people on my show, but because I post every day on LinkedIn and I post very vulnerable stories about 
the lows that I've experienced and then have gotten so much back from people who don't have that same, I'm going to call it courage, Patrick, to just drop the fucking mask Mm. and let everyone know that, yeah, we're human. We're, we're homo sapiens, not just FOMO sapiens, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So final question. If you could go back to Georgetown and do it all over again, but based on the immense wisdom you have right now, what advice would you give yourself, Patrick? Yeah, I would do two things. Number one, I would get, I'd go do like the business plan competition. I just, I remember we had, I was like, why do I want to do that? I don't want to be out. So what? Even if you want to be a lawyer, go and just try see what it is, you know, do a terrible job, nothing to lose. That that's number one. I, I mean, I just can't believe that. So like I, I missed opportunity. Number two is I would have taken more electives. I was so pre-professional. I was like, if this class doesn't fit, it's not like econ in Latin America. I'm not interested. And I'm glad I took those classes, but like, why didn't I take pottery? You know, should have taken pottery, studio pottery. That, that I wish I had done, but you know, I did study abroad, which really limited my free time, but even so I could have taken, I know pottery, photography, something like crazy like that. I don't know, French literature from the 1930s. I didn't do that stuff. And I'm an, I'm a really like curious person. And so like, I would have loved it, but I was also a grade grubber. So I was probably, I think I was afraid of getting a bad grade. Oh, well, that's fantastic advice. Patrick is the author of Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice, and of the international bestseller, The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. And of course, he's also the host of the top-ranked podcast, FOMO Sapiens. Patrick, Thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was just terrific. Thank you so much, Andrea. And and it's really been a pleasure to be here. And for those of you who are listening, come find me. I love hearing from you. So don't be a stranger. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.